name is Michael Tuck, and I'm the associate pastor here at Bacon's Castle Baptist Church. We are a local church in Surrey, Virginia, dedicated to making disciples of Jesus Christ. This is the weekly podcast that we put out for our local church family and the church as a whole. We hope you enjoy this week's podcast. Preaching narrative text is... um... And what I mean by narrative text is a story text like the one we're looking at here in the book of Joshua. It's probably one of the hardest things that a teacher of the Word of God does. And uh, the reason I say that is because most of us that are teaching the Bible, we want to teach the Bible in such a way that it has practical application for us today. I mean, very easy for me just simply to tell you the story, to tell you what happened in the story. You could actually read that for yourself. But most of us want to, you know, bring it personally home and say, this is how this can affect us in a positive way. It was the American philosopher George Santayana who said, those who fail to learn from history are doomed to repeat it. But having said that, there's an arbitrariness about doing this. I don't know if a few weeks ago, if you remember in the story of the spies there in, uh, in Jericho, they told, they told Rahab, they said, put this red rope out your window. And this red rope's got to be out of your window when we come, because if not, we're not going to be able to save you. And, and I think the, the obvious reason for that was so they could identify, you know, this red rope in a window. They would know which window was Rahab's. Now, that's the reason I think they wanted a red rope in the window. But there are countless sermons out there about how the red rope represents the blood of Jesus and how that was pointing us to, to Jesus. Now, I personally have a hard time seeing that, all right? I have a hard time seeing that application or that, uh, or that principle from, from the text. And I tell you all this simply to say that I'm going to do some of that this morning. And uh, so I want you to be aware, I'm, I'm keenly aware that you might not see what I'm going to see in the text. I do want to draw some, uh, some practical principles and applications from us, from, from the text that we have in front of us. So as our story continues, we have found Israel. They've crossed over the Jordan River by the, by the work of God. They're in the promised land. And battles for the land are about to begin. And it's kind of interesting, isn't it, that the most difficult battle they're going to face is the very first one. I guess maybe God wants to get that out of the way so they'll be filled with hope for all the rest of the battles, although it doesn't really go that way. But that is a tremendously difficult battle in front of them. Israel's future is about to change. They're they're now going to be committed to this new direction, this new enterprise. And this new enterprise that lies before them for the next few years, actually, is going to be war. They're they're going to be going to war. Now, before they enter into this new future, though, I think that what we see in chapters five and six, which are the texts that's before us this morning, we're going to see that they need to address some things from the past and they need to reaffirm some things for the future. So often in our life, it's sort of like that, isn't it? We're finding ourselves on the cusp of something new, this new future adventure that lies before us. Maybe it's a new job or a new location or a new ministry or a new relationship or something new, right? And as I read the text, I saw four directives from God for Israel as they faced this new future. And what I'd like to do is I'd like to lift them out of the text and say, I, I think these four directives apply to us when we're on the cusp of a new future. Not necessarily war. It could be something different. But I think there's four ideas here that would be good for us to apply whenever we find ourselves at the beginning of something new that God is doing in our lives. So uh, when big changes lie in front of us, let's do these four things. Number one, let's address past failures. 
If you look at the text, we'll learn that, uh, and I'm not going to read the text. I'm going to hope and assume that you read it. If you haven't read it, go back and read chapters 5 and 6, next week 7 and 8, so that you're prepared for, for what I'm going to be teaching. You'll already have some kind of backdrop. But uh, in uh, what we find in chapters 5 and 6 is that God wants them to address a failure in their past. Now, they've walked across the Jordan River. Uh, they, have, uh, they have gone... Uh, by God's providence through a river that they could not have crossed on their own. And the people of Canaan now know they're doomed. If it's true that it was a supernatural miracle that the water actually stood up on the Jordan, you can be guaranteed that Jericho saw that. And so they felt their doom. What, what, what could they do against a God who could pile up the waters uh, of the Jordan? But on Israel's part, there's a problem in the past. Look at chapter 5, verse 2. At that time, the Lord said to Joshua, Make flint knives and circumcise the Israelite men again. So Joshua made flint knives and circumcised the, Israel men, the Israelite men at Gibeoth uh, Harloth. This is the reason Josh circumcised them. All the people who came out of Egypt who were males, all the men of war, had died in the wilderness along the way after they had come out of Egypt. Though all the people who came out were circumcised, none of the people born in the wilderness along the way were circumcised after they had come out of Egypt. Now, 40 years earlier, they had refused entrance. They had been refused entrance into the promised land because of unbelief and lack of faith. And so for the last 40 years, they've been sort of like a refugee camp, but not one that's stationary, one that's just sort of wandering all over the, the wilderness or the desert area. And during this time, we read that they have never circumcised their young boys. Now, circumcision was a sign of the covenant that God made with Abraham. People want to, you know, discuss why would God make that uh, the, the mark of, of their nationality for men, but he did. He, he said all men are to be circumcised, and all men prior, evidently, up until the time they left Egypt, were circumcised. So all the men coming out of Egypt had been circumcised, but the whole time they'd been in the desert, they hadn't circumcised. Why had that been? Why did they not do that? And it doesn't tell us in the text, and I read a number of Jewish scholars, I read a number of Christian scholars, people trying to guess why it was or, you know, speculate on why they had not circumcised. I want to suggest to you that it was probably either rebellion or apathy. And by rebellion, I mean, maybe they were thumbing their nose at God and say, okay, God, you're not letting us in. You know, we're not going to associate our children with you. And so they didn't circumcise their children. Could have been rebellion. Maybe it was apathy. They just didn't care at that point. You know, there are some other suggestions as well, but whatever it was, they did not do what God had wanted them to do. And so when they get here, the first thing that God wants them to do before they, they, cross, before they go into war, before they start this new, if you would, this new direction for their nation, God wants them to rectify this failure of the past. He wants them to fix it. By his instruction, they do that. And so they address this past failure. I want to say to all of us, when God has a new beginning for us as far as something in the future, you know, maybe it's a, a new ministry, maybe it's a new job, maybe it's a new location we're moving to, you know, whatever it might be, if there's something new in our future, then one of the things that we ought to do is look back on the past and say, God, is there anything from my past that I'm leaving behind, moving to this new thing? Is there anything that I need to address? Is there anything that I need to, to fix from my past? I remember when I went to seminary, I, I went to Columbia Bible College, and uh, I had gone to Ferrum United Methodist College for my undergrad work. And my first year and a half at seminary were really, really tough. 
And let me tell you why they were tough. They were not tough academically. I did find academically. They were tough because they had all of these rules that I thought were pointless and arbitrary. And I chafed under all of their different rules. It was really, really tough. And, uh, and actually, I, if I'm being honest, I think I left after a year and a half because I didn't want to submit to those rules anymore. So I left and I had no intention of going back to Columbia. I had planned to go and finish at Southwestern or some other place that didn't have arbitrary and pointless rules. But uh, during the next year of not being in school or half a year, however long it was that I was out, um, God was dealing with me and he said, Jimmy, you can't lead if you can't learn to submit. You can't be someone that other people might choose to follow if you can't learn to follow yourself. And during that time, I felt like God said, before I move on to whatever's in the future, I have to address a failure in the past and I have to go back to Columbia and finish there. And I did. I went back to Columbia and I finished and I no longer chafed under the arbitrary and pointless rules that, by the way, since now, since then, they've done away with them. <laughs> so um, anyway, I'm not trying to say that there's always failures in our past. I'm not trying to say when there's something new in front of you and there's a future opening up that's different from the past. I'm not trying to say that you're going to have failures in the past. I'm simply saying that if you do have failures in the past, you need to go back and fix them. You need to go back and rectify them before you move on. And notice this, God pointed it out to them. It doesn't say that Joshua said, let's do this. It says, no, God said, you do this. You fix this wrong in the past. And so what I would suggest to you and me is that when there's a future in front of us that's opening up, why not just take a moment and say, God, anything in the past I need to fix? I mean, ask the Lord to reveal to you things that maybe you need to go back. And maybe it's a, maybe it's a person you need to apologize to. Maybe it's a, a situation that you need to rectify where you did wrong, and obviously that would take an apology, but maybe there's something else that you need to do to fix that past as well. The question is, am I willing to fix wrongs that I've left in the past before I move on to the future and do something different? And I suggest that we need to go back and rectify the past. Now, notice what, what God says to Joshua after this is completed. Uh, I'm not sure what verse, is it, or verse it is, but it's in that first First story in chapter five, God says, today, after they had circumcised the men, today I have rolled back the disgrace of Egypt from you. And so when, when you and I fix the past, God, is, God says, I'm rolling back the disgrace of that past. You know, that's in the past. Now move on into the future. So number one, go back and, and rectify any past failures. Here's the second thing, celebrate past victories. So I guess when there's a future in front of us that's opening up, that's different than what we've been into, then, then there's always, there's good for us to look back, to look back at failures, but also to look back at victories. And, and notice this, they commemorate the past, they celebrate the past victories by observing the Passover. So look at verse 10. While the Israelites camped at Gilgal on the pass plains of Jericho, they observed the Passover on the evening of the 14th day of the month. The day after Passover, they ate unleavened bread and roasted grain from the produce of the land. And the day after they ate from the produce of the land, the manna ceased since there was no more manna for, for the Israelites. They ate from the crops of the land of Canaan that year. So what they did was, as they're beginning to move in, they're going to go to war, and this is the beginning of war. They're not in war yet. They're, they're on the plains of Jericho waiting for this to start. But as the future is unfolding, they're looking back and they're celebrating what God did to get them out of Egypt and to get them to this point by his mighty power. 
Now they celebrate this uh, past by doing what God's told them to do, and that is to observe the Passover. And, and again, it, you could say it's coincidental. They end up there during the Passover time, right? But I don't think so. I think it's by divine providence, God is orchestrating this. So they're going to celebrate the past by observing Passover. But notice that, that this Passover meal marks a difference from the past and the present or the past and the future. In the past, God's been feeding them by manna. They've gone out every morning and collected this bread substance to eat, and that's how they've eaten for 40 years. But on celebrating the past, the manna stops because now there's a new future and they're moving into the land. So this celebration also marks this, like this change between the past and the future. When, when you're leaving behind what God has, has done for something that God is opening up in the future, my suggestion to all of us is that we celebrate the past. That we not just look back for failures and deal with that, but we look back on the past and we celebrate what God has done to get us to that spot. Now the Passover meal, you know what it was, don't you? It was a remembrance meal. The whole purpose of the, of the meal was to remember what God did getting them out of Egypt, right? And so they're remembering. I want to suggest to you all that we do something in remembrance as well of all that God did in the past to get us to where we are for this future that's opening up in front of us. And, and if I might, you know, I would suggest, why don't we do what they did? Why don't we have a meal to commemorate what God has done in the past as we begin to do the future, begin to open the future? Now, and what I'm not saying is this. I'm not saying, and again, it's not anything wrong with this. You know, when, when somebody turns... 60, 70, 50, and, you, and other people who love them throw a party for them, remembering their last 50 years or so, or somebody's retiring and their, 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 their uh, workmates throw them a retirement party. I'm not saying that's bad, I'm not, but I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about you as the one who's getting ready to move into the future. Why don't you celebrate by having a meal of remembrance where you invite your friends together with you and you remind them of God's grace and God's goodness and God's power and getting you to that spot where this new future is opening up. Y'all follow what I'm saying there? So, I, you know, so there is, there's this directive for them, if you would, that they are to remember the past. They're to celebrate what God has done uh, in the past. Number three. So we, we look back for failures and we deal with them. We look back at victories and celebrate those. And here's the third thing we do. We reaffirm as we, as we're standing on the cusp of a new future, we reaffirm our leader. Now this third directive is probably the most important though. I think everything I'm sharing with you, I think has significance for us today. But, uh, but this, this one is the most important. We have to reaffirm our, our leader when we're standing on the cusp of something new. So in the story, as, as you have it in front of you there, uh, God meets with Joshua. And his, his purpose in doing so is that Joshua might recognize him as the leader and then reaffirm him as the leader or the one who's at the helm of what's transpiring. God desires for Joshua to reassert, reconfirm, if you would, God's leadership, God's power, God's position, God's personality or persona in this, both his own personal life and in the life of Israel corporately as, as a nation. So they're about to go into battle, and in verse 13, we find this encounter with God. When Joshua was near Jericho, he looked up and he saw a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua approached him and asked, are you for us or for our enemies? Neither, he replied. I have now come as commander of the Lord's army. 
And then Joshua bowed with his face to the ground in homage and asked him, what does my Lord want to say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, remove the sandals from your feet for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did that. So Joshua is near Jericho and, and he meets this figure that we see described here for us. He's obviously an impressive figure. Uh, and he has a sword in his hand. And I'm speculating here, but there's something different about this man so that Joshua does not run from him and Joshua does not attack him, but instead ask him the question, you know, uh, whose side are you on? Now, one of the questions that we need to address really early on here in this part of the discussion is who is this person that meets with, uh, that meets with Joshua? Now, most theologians, if not all theologians, believe that the person that Joshua met with that day is, uh, is God appearing as a man. Now, if, if anything I say this morning is important for you to remember, this is probably it, okay? So this is in theology called a theophany. That's the theological term. And theophany is when God appears to man as a man. And, and so in this particular situation, theologians are saying that the person standing in front of Joshua is literally, actually God who's taking on the appearance of a man. Now, there's numerous theophanies in the Old Testament. One of them, and I'll just mention one other one. One one was when uh, Abraham is resting at his house and God and two angels show up. You remember this? And they're going to go destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. And, uh, and so that's a theophany. God shows up and uh, he, has the appearance, uh, he has the appearance of a man. And uh, maybe even more specifically, most people, most theologians believe, and, and we, can, you know, we can debate this, but most theologians believe that this theophany is Jesus. In fact, a lot of theophanies, in fact, a lot of theologians believe that all the theophanies of the, uh, of the Old Testament are the person of Jesus. Remember, there's one God, right? But he's three persons. He's the Father, he's the Son, who's Jesus, and he's the Spirit. And uh, so most people believe that this is a theophany of Jesus, that the person of Jesus is the one who's taking on human form and meeting with Joshua or meeting with Abraham uh, back in the book of Genesis. Now, I, I, before I move on from this, I, I want to talk about the difference between a theophany and what Jesus did in Bethlehem, because this is just huge, everyone. Okay, you need to get this. A theophany is God simply taking on our appearance. What Jesus did for us and what Jesus did at Bethlehem was not that he took on the appearance of a man, but he took on our nature. He became one of his creatures. Philippians chapter 2 says that even though he was God or equal to God, he considered that equality with God not something that he needed to hold on to, but he emptied himself of that and he became like one of his creatures. And, you know, Christians debate over what he emptied himself of, but, but at least I think we would all agree agree that what Jesus did in the incarnation was in some form limiting himself, right? Even though we, it, it is orthodoxy, and, and we should all affirm this, that when Jesus became a creature like us, he didn't lay aside any of his divine nature in becoming like us, but he obviously laid aside something because he emptied himself. The, the difference between a theophany is Jesus doesn't lay aside anything. Jesus' nature is not changed in any way. He's simply taking on an appearance to look like us. But in the incarnation, he actually becomes 
one of us yet with, without sin. Now, why do people believe that this is a theophany? For three reasons. One of them is that the person claims to be the commander of all of God's host. Number two, Joshua bows down before him in homage or in worship, if you would. And, uh, and this person doesn't say, whoa, 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 I'm just an angel. Get up off your feet, Joshua, because that's what angels do all throughout the Bible. They tell people to get up off their feet and not worship them because they're not God. But in this particular case, this being doesn't do that. And the third reason, maybe more significantly than the first two, is that this being then says to Joshua, Joshua, take off your shoes because the place where you are standing is holy ground. In other words, anybody remind, remember those words somewhere? They're, they're back in, in the beginning of Exodus where, where Moses meets God right in the burning bush. And God says to Moses, Moses, you're in the presence of God. Take off your shoes. This is holy ground. This same being says the same thing to Joshua. And so it's, a, it's pretty much a given as far as most uh, faithful students of the Bible. This is God appearing to Joshua as a man. So assuming this is God, assuming this is even Jesus, if you would, he's inviting Joshua to reaffirm his leadership. And, and I think he does that through four specific invites. Let me show you what they are. Number one, he's inviting Joshua to surrender to him. Joshua starts off this encounter by saying, hey, hey, whose side are you on? Are you on their side? Or are you on our side? And this being replies, I'm on neither one of y'all's sides. I'm the commander of the Lord's host. I'm, I'm, I don't have a side. I am Lord over all. And so what he's really asking Joshua is, Joshua, you, it's not that I'm on your side. Are you on my side? And we need to be careful not to lose sight of this truth, everyone, because it's really, really easy for us to think about God being on our side, isn't it? I mean, we hear this in, in politics all the time. God's on, God's on the Republican side or God's on the Democratic side. Both, both parties claim him, right? Both parties claim him. And I'm here to tell you that he's not a Republican or a Democrat. He, he's really not even part of this nation, if you would. He, he has a, a nation of his own, God's people. He's king over all. So we need to make sure that we're not trying to get God on our side. We need to make sure that we're on God's side. And I'm not trying to say that political parties and political platforms don't better line up with the will of God revealed to us in the scripture. I'm not saying that. But what I am saying is we need to stop seeing Jesus as being on our side. We need to start seeing ourselves as, Lord, I want to be on your side. I want, I want to be on your side. You're the, one I, you're the one who is my leader, not my helper and my stuff. Secondly, he invites Joshua to follow. Look at chapter 6, verse 1. This being, God, now says to Joshua, Now Jericho was strongly fortified because of the Israelites, no one leaving or entering. The Lord said to Joshua, Look, I have handed Jericho, its king, and its best soldiers over to you. March around the city with all the men of war, circling the city one time. Do this six days. Have seven priests carry seven ram's horns. Uh, trumpets in front of the ark. But on the seventh day, march around the city seven times while the priests blow the ram's horns. And when there is a prolonged blast of the horn and you hear it shout, have all the troops give a mighty shout and then the city wall will collapse and the troops will advance each man straight ahead. 
Now notice that, that Jesus or, or God isn't asking Joshua to go fight this battle for him. In a way, he's saying, I want you to go and I am going to fight this battle for you. Excavations tell us that the walls of Jericho were in, a, in essence 18 feet tall. So this was a battle that, uh, that Joshua could not win, that the Israelites could not win. God's not saying, go win this on your own. He's saying, I'm going to go before you and I'm going to win this battle for you. Jesus is, or God, this being is asking Joshua to reaffirm his trust in God and his willingness to follow, to follow Jesus. So Jesus is inviting Joshua, he's inviting the Israelites to follow him. God doesn't need us for anything. Y'all know that, right? He doesn't need us for anything. He doesn't need us to do anything for him. He doesn't need us to try to do things apart from him, okay? But what he is saying is, if you're willing, I will do the impossible through you. If you're willing to come and follow me, I'm willing to work through you and accomplish things that you can't even begin to imagine or think of. A.W. Tozer once said, God is looking for people through whom he can do the impossible. What a pity we plan only the things we can do by ourselves. So God is asking Joshua to reaffirm his leadership. And he does so by saying, surrender to me, follow me. And then he invites Joshua to worship. He invites him to worship. Joshua's already on his knees. But then again, as I just pointed out a second ago, this being says, Joshua, take off your shoes because where you're standing is holy ground. In other words, Joshua, worship me. And our, our leader, everyone, is, is worthy of so much more than just us surrendering to him and following him. He's worthy of us to worship him. And you say, what's the difference? I think there's a huge difference. I think we can follow God because it benefits us, right? We follow God because he's going to do something for us. In fact, if I could say something to the prosperity culture out there, the prosperity Christian world out there, you know, you confuse people because you're following God or all he can do for you. We should follow God because we love God. We worship God. We should do what God wants us to do and surrender to his will because we love him. The difference between worship and, and every other way of every other reason of following God is those are all self-centered. When we worship, we worship God because we love him. We worship him because he's our creator and he has loved us first and we are loving him in response to his loving us. You remember what the Bible says, right? Jesus says that here's the greatest commandment of all, right? And it's not a, it's about a bunch of do's. It's not a bunch of do this, do this, do this, right? It's, it's this one thing. Love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might, with all your strength. In other words, love God with your whole entire being. That's the greatest commandment. That's really what it's all about. And that's what, and that's what this being is asking Joshua to reaffirm. Are you willing to love me? Are you willing to worship me? Worship me, Joshua, now. Worship me. And then, and then finally, uh, his last invite is for Joshua to win. And the reason I say this, because if we go back to the very first encounter with him in chapter 5, verse 13, you, I don't know if you noticed this when we read it, but when Joshua nears Jericho, he looks up and saw a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand. I mean, the sword's not in the sheath, everyone. It's, it's drawn. It's out. It's, it's drawn for battle. Basically, this being is inviting Joshua to surrender to him, follow him, worship him, so that Joshua might win. God is inviting Joshua to win by submitting to him. 
We see this all throughout the, uh, the New Testament, especially in the book of Acts. So John and Peter are arrested and they're finally set free. And the church in, in Acts chapter 4 gets together and they worship. They worship, reaffirming, God, we know what's before us. Now empower us. And they worship to go forward. When Peter goes to Cornelius' house and he leads Cornelius and his family to faith in Jesus, they, they, they later meet because he's a Gentile, not a Jew. The church meets and together they worship and together they thrust themselves out to go reach the Gentile world. So worship precedes going out to win. All throughout the book of Acts, we see this. Paul and Barnabas, they're worshiping with the leaders of the church at Antioch. And the next thing you know, God's saying, go, go and go, go to the nations of the world. You, uh, we, find it, um, we find it all throughout the book of Acts where the Spirit of God, they're worshiping, and God is leading them out to, to worship. Now, let me, let me apply this point to us, and uh, I'm almost finished, okay? I'm, I'm in the sun, so y'all should be okay in the shade. <laughs> I'm almost finished, though. So uh, let me apply this point to us. And maybe this is something we should do every day, not just when we're facing a new future, Right? But when there's a future opening up that's different from our past and we're getting ready to step into it, I believe that God would direct us to reaffirm our, our trust, our, his leadership in our life. And I, I think he would invite us to do the same four things that he invited uh, Joshua to do. That is to, as, as I'm stepping out into this new job, as I'm stepping out into this new ministry, as I'm stepping out into whatever it might be, I was thinking about John and Rachel this morning when I was practicing. Thank you, Lord, for helping me remember this. <laughs> so they're, uh, so they're, they're stepping out into something new in a couple of weeks, right? A life together. They're both leaving their past behind, their singleness behind, right? All of these things apply to them so wonderfully. Hey, is there any failure in the past you need to address? Celebrate your singleness. But, and, and then now as you're stepping into this future of marriage, John and Rachel, if you're watching during the video of the live stream, I'm talking to you. As you're stepping into the future as you're stepping into this future, now so you need to reaffirm God's, God's control, his, his, excuse me, not his control, his love for you. you. You need to reaffirm the fact that you are surrendered to him. You need to reaffirm the fact that he's your leader and you're following him and you need to worship him and you need to worship him together so that you will win in, in marriage. You see, you see, that's just a one way of applying this, but it applies to all of us. When there's a new future in front of us, one of the things that, that we should do is reaffirm in this new future that God is our leader and that we're, that we're trusting him for whatever the future lies. That's a great segue into my final directive from the Lord for Israel and then applying that to us. So let me back over them real quick. So the, the first one was look back and say, are there any failures that I need to address before I move on? Look back and celebrate all the things that God did in your past to get you to your future. Reaffirm your leader. Reaffirm Jesus as the, as the one that's in charge, right, uh, of your life and of your future. And then the last directive is press into the future. It, it's the simple step of, of just moving out and walking into the future that God has opened up for you and not becoming a coward and not backing out of what God has led you to for, for the future. We simply step out and we obey the Lord. If you would, this is actually the, one of the points from last week's message. Remember the point was that you get to the river and you just have to step in and you just have to trust the Lord. You have to do what God's called you to do. This is the same point all over again for them. Now they need to press into this future of war that God, uh, that God has 
for them. And so here's what uh, Jesus or God instructs them. He says, the first day you go out, you're to march around Jericho with the ark and you're to be quiet and you march around the city one time and you go home. That's what they did. And actually for the next six days, for, for the first six of seven days, that's what they did. They went out all together. They walked around the walls of Jericho, not saying anything. Can you imagine being a person from Jericho on the walls, watching this massive amount of people just circle your city and not saying anything? And that's what they do quietly, and they go back, go back to their camp out of Gilgal. And so I imagine those people were like, what in the world? By the seventh day, they're like, oh, here they go again. But the seventh day was different. Chapter 6, verse 15. Early on the seventh day, they started at dawn, and they marched around the city seven times in the same way that was... That was the only day they marched around the city seven times. And after the seventh time, the priest blew the ram's horns. And Joshua said to the troops, shout, for the Lord has given you the city. But the city and everything in it is set apart to the Lord for destruction. Only Rahab and everyone with her in the house will live because she hid the messengers we sent. But keep yourselves from the things set apart or or you will be set apart for destruction. If you take any of the things, you will be set apart. You will set apart the camp of Israel for destruction and make trouble for it. For all the silver and all the gold and all the articles of bronze and iron, they are dedicated to the Lord and must go into the Lord's treasury. So the Lord, so the troops shouted and the ram's horn sounded and uh, they heard the blast of the ram's horns and the troops gave a shout and the walls collapsed. And the troops advanced into the city, each man straight ahead, and they captured the city. And they completely destroyed everything in the city with the sword. Every man and woman, both young and old, every ox, every sheep, and every donkey. And so they did what they were told. And the walls of Jericho fell down, and the destruction of the city was complete. When the walls fell, all the people on the walls and people in the houses that were on the walls, they would have been killed. So a lot of people would have been destroyed just from walls falling down. My wife pointed out that maybe they, uh, we were talking about this and it seems like not all the walls fell down, but enough of the walls fell down so that there was a breach in the, in the city so that the people could go in. Let me encourage you in your faith with the reliability of the Bible. These are some archaeological discoveries. I'm not going to read all of this because of time, but I'm going to read a little bit. The Israelites burned the city and everything in it, according to Joshua 6.24. Once again, the discoveries of archaeology have verified the truth of the record. Uh, A portion of the city destroyed by the Israelites was excavated on the east side of the Tell. That's the mountain that's there. Wherever the archaeologists reached the same level, they found a layer of burnt ash and debris, about one, uh, about one meter thick. Archaeologist Kenyon described the massive devastation as follows. The destruction was complete. Walls and floors were blackened or reddened by fire, and every room was filled with fallen bricks, timbers, and household utensils. In most rooms, the fallen debris was heavily burnt, but the collapse of the wall of the, on, uh, of the eastern rooms seems to have taken place before they were affected by fire. Uh, Both Garstan and Kenyon, two archaeologists, found many storage jars filled with grain that had been caught in the fiery destruction. This is unique find in the annals of archaeology. Grain was valuable not only as a source of archaeology. Grain was valuable not only 
I read that again. Not only as a source of feed, but also as a commodity by which, commodity by which to barter with. Under Norcom's circumstances, valuables such as grain would have been plundered by their conquerors. Why was the grain left in Jericho? Well, the Bible tells us because God told them not to take anything and what was to be taken was to be taken for their treasury. Joshua had invited Jesus, excuse me, had invited Joshua to win, but to win they had to press on and they had to do what God had directed them to do for the future. After they had addressed the past failures, celebrated the past, reaffirmed Jesus or God as their leader, then they pressed forward into what God had called them to do. They didn't chicken out this time. They didn't cower and say the walls are too tall. They went forward as God had commanded them to do. And what I would say to all of us this morning maybe in, in, as a way of closing this even, I would say to all of you, when there's that, that opening in front of you for the future and God is directing your steps, then, then why not try these four directives? Why not do what God instructed Israel to do? Remember your past, celebrate your past, reaffirm Jesus, and then, then press in. Don't, don't chicken out. Don't change your mind. Do what God has called you to do. Press in to the future. Lean into it. I hope that's challenged you and uh, maybe encouraged you this morning. But that's what the Lord gave me for us today. So if you would, let's bow our heads and let me pray for us. You know, Father, there's, there's just moments in our life, time after time, when you open up a new future where you're telling us to leave something behind and you're giving us a new, new instructions for something that's different than we've known, new place, new job, new ministry, new whatever new relationship. Lord, I pray that uh, when those new things come, that we would take a moment and pause and, and just do what, uh, what Israel did in this particular case. Lord, help us to always celebrate what you've done in our past. Help us to always recognize how you've led through the past, blessed us in the past, provided for us in the past. Help us to celebrate that. Lord, I pray, I guess maybe most, most importantly, that we would always reaffirm your leadership in our future whatever lies ahead of us, that, God, we would be willing to trust you for it and say, God, we, uh, we surrender to you, we follow your lead, and we worship you because of who you are. So, Lord, help us to do that with any future that lies before us. Father, uh, help us, we pray now, in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you so much for listening this week. If you have any questions, you can email them to Pastor Jimmy at baconscastle.com. Also, check out our website at baconscastle.com to get to know us and see what God is doing locally here in Surrey. Be blessed. Mm-hmm.